welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 248, the Future of Hunting Seminar from the 2019 NWTF Convention. And I am your host and the guy who is embarrassed to say that I struggled for an hour and a half to put the bush hog on my tractor this past Saturday. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute, but Today, right this very second, we are 233 days, 11 hours, 10 minutes, and 50 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So I went out to my property south of Birmingham to check on the chufa that I planted a couple of weeks ago, and you guys probably remember me telling you that the bracket that attaches the axle to the frame of the disc for my tractor fell on my foot that weekend. But my buddy Todd and I got chufa in the ground anyway, and we hoped for rain. And we hoped for me to not get eaten out of house and home down there. So this weekend was my first weekend to go back down there after planting. And what did I discover? I discovered the field that I planted for the second time looking like the surface of the moon. There were craters everywhere in the field. So I've been eaten out of house and home by the deer, the coons, the turkeys, the crows, the possums, the peacock, and any other critter around there that loves chufa. And I had exactly zero chufa sprouting up. So I've given up on chufa for the year down there. And I went ahead and decided to go ahead and spray the Johnson grass that was growing in my field because I need to get rid of that stuff. Otherwise, it's going to continue to take over the field. And I also decided that it was time to pull the disc off of the tractor and put the bush hog on. Now, I'm sure that many of you guys know that changing an implement on a tractor is a much easier process if there's an extra set of hands to help you. Well, I didn't have that extra set of hands Saturday, so I was taking on this job by myself. And having grown up in a family of farmers, now my family were plant farmers. They owned garden centers and they did landscaping, but they were farmers nonetheless. I have changed a lot of implements on tractors, skid steers, and backhoes, and all sorts of equipment. I'm usually semi-fast at changing those things out by myself. I know that a lot of your success or failure depends on lining everything up properly when you 
either pull the machine in or back the machine in to the implement you want to attach. And even though I know that, that's where I went wrong from the very start. But nonetheless, I got the bush hog connected, did maybe 15 minutes of bush hogging when I need to do about three hours worth. But I ran out of time to do any more, but I'm ready for next weekend. So I can get all of my cutting done next weekend that I need to do. And of course, I'll have to cut one more time before I disc to plant my food plots. But at least it'll look a little bit better between now and then. And I think it'll make it a little bit easier for me when I go to spray my fields to kill all of the weeds and grasses that are growing in them. So, no chufa. And I think I've realized that next year I'm obviously going to have to plant a little bit earlier, get my chufa in the ground a little earlier. And I think I also need to over seed. So I'm probably going to plan on putting about 50% more seed in the ground than what I really need. It's not a huge area that I'm planting chufa in, and if I have to, I can come in and spot spray some of it over the course of two or three trips down to thin out the chufa that way if too much of it comes up. But if I don't get rain and get it quickly after I plant it, then I know I'm going to get eaten out of house and home again next year. Hey, I've got another good episode for you guys today, and it is the seminar put on by Cuz Strickland, Fred Zink, Jimmy Primos, Jeremiah Dowdy, and Matt Moret from the 2019 NWTF convention in Nashville. The seminar is called The Future of Hunting. Now, this week, I've got a ton of stuff going on with work. So I'm going to be very brief today, and before I start the recording, I need to tell you that Cameron recorded this episode for me at the NWTF convention, and that was extremely helpful. And because there were five presenters in this seminar, it was impossible to mic up everyone, but we've actually got really good audio. I'm just not sure what Cameron was doing with the microphone while he was sitting there in the seminar. I think maybe he had the microphone clipped onto his shirt and then his media badge was rubbing up against the microphone anytime that he would move. Now, it's not so bad during the seminar, but it's really bad during some of the Q&A part of the seminar. So what I've done is I've got the entire seminar playing from start to finish of this episode and I cut the Q&A part of the seminar off of the episode and I've put it onto the tail end of the show. So if you've ever listened to the outro of the show and you hear the shotgun blast and the turkey flop, today, if you stay tuned, you're going to hear the Q&A portion of the seminar. There's really some good stuff in the Q&A portion of the seminar, but I felt like the audio is a little noisy and it's a little bit harder to hear because when people in the audience stand up to ask a question, they don't always talk very loud. So some of it can be hard to hear, but there really is some good info. So I didn't want to just cut it out and not have it for you guys. Listen to it at the tail end of the episode if you're interested in learning a little bit more about what these guys are talking about in the seminar. Anyway, here is the Future of Hunting seminar. Listen in closely, and I will see you guys on the other side. If you'll spend 90% of your time on finding you a place to hunt, 
no matter how much work that is, the rest of it will come naturally. You know, it ain't no magic call. There is no magic technique. It's all about having dirt or turkeys litter. That may not be what some people tell you, but I'm just telling you what I've learned over 50 years of chasing turkeys is you got to have the dirt, man. That's the main most thing. I spend a lot of time maneuvering to have spots where I can lock it up or not. If I can just go there one or two times, you know, just having options, especially having to get hunted a lot. But that, to me, that's the key is having plenty of spots to do it. So, you got to speak up. I'm old now. Public land? You know, I still do public land. I, I grew up hunting in the home of Chitter National Forest. That's the only place I had till I was in my early to mid-twenties. And toward the end of that, I didn't even go out there except afternoons. Because in the mornings there were so many people out there hooting. And I, and I did most of my hunting out there in the afternoon and was way more successful. So it depends on how much pressure it gets. Public land is a whole nother game. That's a whole nother level of turkey hunting. But I, I don't mind trying. He's big. Still do it. Blowing that tube call trying to locate a turkey. Frankie's there, he's got his turkey vest on, which is down by his ankle. <laughs> and cuz coming over to blow that tube call this way on Frankie, he took him his hands up like that. He's gonna be a pro. Yeah. He's, be a pro. he's pretty unique. We do have the, the place where we hunted, what he named the devil turkey, is 10 minutes from my house. And it's uh, one old long beard, he's got two running mates with him, and he. It's one of them turkeys you'd call to, he would answer. He'd come to about 150 yards, and that's it. I'm sure you've encountered that. And there's three turkeys in the same spot this year. I put some trail cameras out, so can I say it's the devil turkey? I don't know. The odds are pretty good, but I can tell you this, it opens in, new season opens in uh, Mississippi, like March the 7th or 8th, we'll be sitting there. Now, I, I can't take cranky and run and gun and slip and all that. It's, it's a ground blind. That, that limits your... It ain't how I'm used to it, but it's what it's going to take because he's real small. But yeah, we're going after him, and he's, that's all he talks about. So that's that's good to get him imprinted that little. So Frankie's a unique kid. He don't care if you're filming or not. He's he, he's just uh, he's all about painting his face and staying outside. So that's what we need to do is keep more faces painted and keep them outside. Frankie is his mother's name is Laura. That's uh. Cuz is baby daughter, youngest, youngest daughter. Lauren, you know, Cuz used to work for us. Lauren, Lauren came to the office one day and she had on her fairy costume, you know, wings and everything, and she had a magic wand. And she said, "Do you want me? Uh, you want me to bless you?" And I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So I got down on my knees and she took that magic wand, which really was a plexiglass rod, you know, hard plexiglass rod, and she went, wham! <laughs> it's, it's a true story. I mean, I'm seeing stars. And, and Cuss said, Lauren, why'd you hit him so hard? That's my balls. <laughs> she, she, she said, the harder you do it, the better the blessing is. <laughs> so that's where Cranky gets his <laughs> We'll go ahead and get started. Good morning. Uh, appreciate everybody coming in this morning. My name is Travis Sumner. I'm the Hunting Heritage Center and Habitat Manager at NWTF. 
a little bit about myself there. I manage uh, the property that we have there from a habitat standpoint, but I'm also part of our hunting heritage team. And part of my job is to have our mentor hunt program that we have, taking out new people, getting involved in hunting, uh, letting them experience it for the first time. Uh, working with mentors to train them to know what their responsibility is and what part and what role they play in uh, taking a new hunter out. Um, before well, most of you introduce our panel, you know, think about this. How many of you can remember your first hunt? Very first hunt that you went on. All right, how many in this room have never hunted? Please raise your hand. There's no embarrassment. There you go. We got one guy. There we go. We've got a prospect in the room. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, do you remember who the first person was that took you on your hunt? And what impact that person had on you? And what was the drive after that that made you want to continue to hunt or be in the outdoors? You know, for us that have done it all our lives and experienced it, been out there on a spring morning, uh, been in a cold duck blind watching sunrises that a lot of people don't get to experience, you know, it, there's something about that. And every time we have a class at NWTF or a group of new hunters, you know, everybody thinks it's about filling the tags, it's about the biggest buck, it's about, you know, the longest spurs on the gobbler, killing that limit of ducks. It's not about that. We tell you it's about that experience. It's that first time experience. It's that lasting experience that you have that you'll remember. Because everybody in this room remembers your first hunt you went on. Correct? Remember the first animal you are. So that's what's really neat. You know, hunting today, if you're not familiar with it, a lot of us in this room don't know this. You may or you may not. Hunting is on a decline. Our, our traditional thing that we grew up with Hunter numbers are on a decline because the generation today doesn't know anything about it. You know, the, the parents, parents of our young people were always talking about our youth, but there's a generation out there. If you look and you talk to state agencies and you look at that, hunter numbers are on a decline drastically. Everybody in this room, you know, the guys up front, myself, you as hunters, you know, hunting is a valuable part of wildlife management. You are a wildlife manager. You don't have to have a whole list of degrees behind you. You as a hunter play a vital role in habitat and wildlife management. Hunters pay for conservation. They pay for the resource. If you guys, and we don't have people hunting, buying licenses, buying ammunition, buying guns to support the conservation efforts, our sport will slowly, slowly slip away. And it's gonna take an effort not just from conservation organizations, the hunting industry. We've got to get people involved. You've got to have that want or that drive to get out there and to want to introduce someone that first hunt. I told somebody the other day what Mary meant to me, and I said, well, you know, I've had an opportunity to be um, hunting for about 30 years. I made a career out of, of wildlife management, had opportunity to work with some of these folks in the industry with them experience great hunts, tag out, do all that good stuff. But today, what's great <coughs> to me, if I never shot or tagged out a turkey, shot a big Boone and Crockett deer, still no limit of dust, the thrill that I get now is to watch that first time person here and see how they experience that. 
Hunting to us has always been a tradition. It's always been a part of our life. It's not about being there on the deer stand, you know, and harvesting that deer. That's part of it, but it's after the hunt. It's the friendships you make. It's the camaraderie. It's sitting around the campfire telling stories. It's taking what you harvested that day, preparing it for a meal. You know, for a lot of us in this room, hunting has been about, it's always been, you know, a passion and an obsession. It's been about speaking the language. It's been about a champion in every call, sounding like a champion when you call. And now, you know, it's all about the generation today. It's about bringing it from the field to the plate. And we're very honored to have some of the top names in the industry that I feel like can make an impact and their companies will make an impact. And they're, they have an interest and want to know how and, and be involved in this new hunter recruitment and get people involved. So I'm very privileged today to have these guys. I'm honored to have them and I appreciate their time that they're taking to discuss this with you guys. You know, from Mossy Oak, we have Mr. Cuz Strickland. Those memories are a lot more vivid than my first one in the home to the National Forest. <laughs> Fred? Um, I was so young I probably couldn't remember. My, uh, I, I grew up in a family that hunted and fished. My, uh, my great-grandpa was a fishing guide. Uh, my dad hunted his entire life. He grew up in northern Indiana. I was in elk camp when I was three years old in Rocky Mountains. So I just uh, grew up on a family farm in, in Ohio and uh, basically hunted and fished every day of my youth. Um, and uh, we had obviously plenty of land to hunt on. I just grew up hunting and fishing. It's kind of what I did since I could walk, per se. So um, started carrying a gun when I was nine years old. But my father's and my grandpa is who got me involved. My uncle, 
and my cousins. I, I just grew up in a family across the board that hunts and fish. So done in my entire life. First animal I ever killed was a blue winged teal with a 20 gauge at uh, Indian Lake in Ohio. So that was, I think I was about eight and a half, nine years old, something like that. So that's how I got started, just looks like a walk, I guess. Awesome. Mr. Jimmy. Uh, well, I think, thinking back, my first hunt was probably a, a dove hunt with my father and his friends. I had a little H&R, single barrel, hammer, 410 shotgun. And uh, I remember, it, you know, just I, I probably shot a lot, and I don't think I really hit much, but I'd go out and pick daddy's birds up. And, uh, for some reason, I, I just, from that moment on, I can remember, I, I, I loved shooting guns. And uh, we lived on a, about a 50-acre little farm right there north of Jackson, Mississippi, and had squirrels and uh, quail and birds on it and stuff like that. So we got home not too long after that first dove hunt. <clears throat> Daddy let me take that, I was four or five years old, let me take that 410, just go out in the woods. And... Uh, you know, some people say, ask me when I tell them that, I said, God, four or five years old and he gave you a 410? Gave me a 410, let me go out with 410. He gave me his Smith & Wesson 38 Special that he had in the Navy that he brought home from the war. And let me go out and shoot that. And I shot a squirrel with it out of the tree. I'll never forget. I don't think I could ever hit a squirrel again with that same pistol, but I, I, I did. And they said, well, wasn't that, wasn't that dangerous? And I said, yeah, it's probably, thinking back on it, it probably was. He was probably hoping I'd have a hunting accident or something. Because <laughs> I think I was, I was eight or nine years old before I realized my first name was not Dang It. <laughs> but uh, that was just kind of a, you know, hunting, hunting and fishing in my family was just something we did. Will's daddy, now you know, y'all know my cousin Will. We're cousins, not brothers. Uh, Will's daddy, Uncle Kenneth, was all into the business end of the family business, so he didn't have much time to hunt or fish. So Will kind of always tagged around with us, and uh, much much to my displeasure, because he was a pain in the neck, still is. <laughs> and I used to take Will on that on that family. We had we had pellet guns and BB guns, and we'd go out and shoot shoot blackbirds and squirrels, whatever we hold still long enough to shoot. I remember the first thing Will ever shot with a pellet rifle was a red-winged blackbird. And I told him they were good to eat, so we plucked it, and uh, I let him build a fire, and he, he cooked it, and he ate it. <laughs> Nobody ever accused Will of being too bright. <laughs> but, but that's where it was on that family place with my father. Thank you. Jeremiah? Yeah, I've got a different story for most of these guys because I'm from Southern California. Um, so it's not this deep-rooted heritage, it's quite the opposite. Uh, so I have actually two first-time hunting stories. First time actually on a hunt itself was a dove hunt uh, with my family, because being in Southern California, birds are primarily what we're going to hunt. And I remember hearing stories of my grandpa talk about sitting on the hood of a car in the middle of the desert in California waiting for the sun to rise to shoot dove. And at seven years old, I told my dad that's what I want to do. And my dad was that kind of dad that said, well, if that's what you want to do, let's go do it. And so I had a over under 410 Sears shotgun. We went out there on my first dove hunt. Um, and I remember it vividly sleeping on the hood of the car. Sun came up 112 degree weather in Southern California, shooting doves coming over the cotton field. Um, vividly with my dad, my uncle, and my grandpa. Like that was the first instant of hunting in my life and that's what drove me to it. Uh, fast forward to 25 and still only a dove hunter and a little bit of hunters. Um, and I went out on my first big game hunt by myself in the middle of Wyoming with um, a cheap rifle, a $30 scope, and a Swiss Army knife. Um, that I didn't have anybody to mentor me. I didn't have anybody to teach me. Uh, sitting in the field with a dead antelope, 
in 90 degree weather saying what now. Um, so those are my those are my two first time hunting stories, and that's kind of why I developed who I am and what I do. Uh, was based on my dad and my uncle and my grandpa telling me stories, and then being forced to do it by myself because um, I didn't have a community to be around, especially in Southern California when you talk about guns and going to prison. So uh, yeah, that's my two first time hunting stories. Cool. One one bit of housekeeping: Can y'all hear in the back? Guys, we might have to use the mic. So, anyway, I just want to make sure we're here. Hey, Matt, tell us about yours. I'm lucky enough to come from a state where hunting is, I think, is in our blood in Pennsylvania. And, and a family, the same way everybody in my family hunted. But my dad, my dad, his first love was turkey hunting. And that's how I got started calling and just trying to mimic what I heard him and his friends doing around the house when I was in kindergarten. And my first experience that got me hooked wasn't really hunting. It was going out, sitting between his legs, and letting me call to a turkey and hearing it gobble back at me. And when the little goosebumps on the back, or the hairs in the back of your neck, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now, that hooked me for life. But in the hunting experience, when I first got to go to the woods, and like Jimmy said, we shot anything we could with a BB gun that stood still. And my first hunting experience, we had to be 12 years old back then to go to the woods and was squirrel hunting. And to be honest with you, this is something that, that I talk about quite a bit. I learned everything I could about the woods in the squirrel woods. And a lot of us in here did, and I, I'm going to ask a question real quick. How many of y'all grew up squirrel hunting? How many do it today? <coughs> okay, that's more than the norm. I think a lot of times we forget about our roots out there, how we learn how to go hunting. And it's been overshadowed a little bit. And that's that's where, to me, when you're introducing somebody new, it doesn't necessarily have to be a deer or a turkey. It's about all that other stuff out there. And, it, and it'll surprise you, because we all take lots of new time, new hunters, whether it's turkey, deer, it doesn't matter what. But for me, I, every time I take a, a youngster or a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old to the woods, I try to teach them more about than just calling them a turkey. Because you wouldn't believe how many people don't know what a white oak tree looks like. And that's, that's what really we, we got to get to this day and age. But for me, I think squirrel hunting, or hearing that turkey gobble and getting in the squirrel woods with my dad was what just instilled that in my, in my fire. And we, and we live it, breathe it, eat it, sleep it 365 days a year. But. Awesome. Thank you, guys. You know, the guys express their first hunts and you know, what, what it is about the outdoors and why they love it and why we all love to be out there. Um, I'm going to direct this one to you, Fred, and guys, y'all just all kind of interact with this one also. You know, since now with the hunter decline numbers and the things that we've seen, you know, what impact has the industry seen with these decline in hunter numbers? Well, I will say, uh, I was talking to Cuz because I didn't know really what the number was. I knew about where it was, but it surprised me what he said it was, 11.5 million. And uh, it wasn't that long ago, we were 19 million, right? So. I, I will say this, uh, I'm talking from the experience of waterfowl hunting, uh, especially. It's kind of where I cut my teeth, obviously turkey hunt, deer hunt, do all that. Um, how does it affect our business? Um, it's hard to tell because our business has grown so much uh, that the retail explosion has grown so much. A lot of the products, you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you had to come to a show like this to hear somebody blow a turkey call or a goose call that really knew what they were doing, you know? 
because we didn't have all the digital media, YouTube and all that. We didn't have all the dot-coms. We didn't have all the Bass Pro Cabela's and big stores everywhere. And so, in my opinion, what I've seen in the waterfowl, there used to be about 3 million waterfowlers, okay? Now there's about 850 to 900,000, but they do it a lot more. So there's less, but there's a lot more days, in my opinion, spent in the field by a majority of the people. I remember growing up as a kid, you could pretty much go to any duck blind on any lake in the state of Ohio after the first or second weekend and hunt about anywhere you wanted. There wasn't nobody there to hunt. Now you can go there on a Wednesday and you better be there early because there's people everywhere hunting. Not as many people doing it, but the people that are doing it are doing it a lot more in just my opinion. That's what I've seen from a standpoint of guiding, from what I see from traveling all over the United States and Canada hunting, and our retail market. Our retail market is still very, very good. Uh, but recruiting hunters, I think uh, we do a lot of stuff with uh, actually Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge in the, in the state of Ohio, and we do youth hunts uh, where we bring them in. We have a youth weekend where we bring them in. We teach them how to blow duck calls, how to rig decoys, how to brush blinds, how to shoot shotguns. And once we do that, then we follow up a later date and we take all those kids. There's usually about 20 to 25 of them. We take them duck hunting. And so if you think about it, there's 11 and a half million of us. If every one of us takes one new person every year, it's not like it's a huge feat. All you have to do is introduce someone that's never hunted before, take them hunting. And I think two things are holding up hunting. Number one is access. I think we become part of our own enemy because leasing, getting permission, the competitiveness of the things going on. Leasing, you know, if a guy goes in, hey, I can kill a big deer over there, I'm gonna try to lease that thousand acres. Well, there's already four people got permission to hunt it. So you go in there and lease it, those four people, three of them might quit. So it's just this natural competitiveness, that's, that's why we're Americans, that's why we're the greatest country there is. We're very competitive people, but we can be our worst enemy. But if you can take people and have success, that's why duck hunting is a very, or in, in, in case what Matt's talking about, turkey hunting is awesome. Because you probably might go get a shot at one, but hearing those turkeys gobble, I know it, what it did the first time I heard one, right? But duck hunting is a sport of socialism. You can sit there and talk in a duck blind. I know Cubs loves duck hunting. Oh, it's my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but duck hunting is a sport of it. Trust me, I've been in many hunts with this guy going, one more day is all we got, right? But duck hunting is a great sport, like dove hunting or whatever. It's a social sport. It's in the duck line. You see a lot of ducks. There's a lot of opportunity uh, to shoot. I know uh, when we take those those young hunters hunting, typically they shoot at least a box of shells. You know, sometimes two boxes of shells. I only have two or three ducks, but they have a big time. And like we, there's a lot of people recruiting from inner city or all, all different types of, of, of things going on to try to get kids to be in hunting. But uh, I always just concentrate on kids that uh, lived in the area, you know, that have the access because access is number one. Okay, you gotta have the ability to have some place to go hunting, and number two, you gotta have the introduction. I think people, humans, in general, are hunters. I think every I think personally, when, I would throw women in here, but a man is a natural hunter. That's who we are, okay? When we're born, we're all hunters. Some get to go hunting and experience that, some do not. But by nature, I believe we're, we've been gatherers and providers our whole life, okay? So, and I, I experienced that 
we do a lot of business overseas and in different countries. And I had some Chinese guys and Taiwanese guys come to America. They wanted to go duck hunting. We took them duck hunting. People that never have ever probably shot a gun since they were in the military. We took them duck hunting. They had smiles on their faces for five days. They couldn't believe how much fun it was. So by nature, I believe we're all hunters. We just got to have the opportunity and a place to go. So. Any thoughts from anybody else? Matt, you got anything to add? Or Cuz, go ahead. Can y'all hear me in the back without a microphone if I stand up here? Uh, Fred's hitting some really good points, and I've been talking on this subject a lot. And I don't think it could be some of its access. I think what we're in a battle for, or what we're in a battle against more than anything, is time. Uh, millennials. You know, it seems like they're married, they got two or three kids, whatever, mom works, dad works, there's no time. There was always time to go hunting one, one. Jimmy and I, I'm not gonna put Fred in that category, when Jimmy and I were young, that's all we had, that's all we did. Uh, so that, that I'm not sure how to fight that battle right there. That's something we gotta think about. The, there are some bright pictures, number one's females. You know, they're, they're so tuned in to organic food, they seem to be way more interested. That, that's why the field of play thing is so dead on point. Right now is the perfect storm. Females are natural predators. Jimmy can speak to that too, I promise. I'm not going to that history. But uh, see, so you got me off track. <laughs> anyway, the females want to they're all in the organic food, you know. Uh, the shows on television on the major networks, Life Below Zero, Uncon Men, all that stuff, they're, they're, they're killing caribou and gutting them and field dressing them. People are fascinated with that stuff. That's why his social media does so great. He's talking about that all the time. People want, it gets to a point when you get somebody introduced, or they kind of freak out a little bit when they get one on the ground. Oh my God, what do we do next? So that's what we got to do. We got to figure out to tell them, hey, if you can't deal with all that, take you do a processor. It ain't, it's not rocket science. It's, it's an easy thing to do. And, and Fred's right about taking kids. I do it all the time. But I've always been on the mindset if you take a kid hunting and you get him all fired up, well, if his parents ain't hunting, he, he's, he's dead in water again. I like to move further past that and find adults who want to do it, who are scared to come out and ask. We used to have a term, I know they've heard called wicker bill. They used to call somebody that didn't hunt around the hunting clamp a wicker bill. You know, and guys are like, they're real hesitant to ask for advice. So I, I searched those people out from time to time, took two or three of them this past fall. Once you get them, 34 days in, buddy, they're on fire, just like that. So to me, the battle is in our neighborhood. You gotta find that person who wants to go, who's kind of scared to ask. Like Fred said, everybody does that one time, bam. We got the most hunters we ever had. You know, it was 18, almost 19 million in the 80s. Now it's down to 11 and a half. It was, we lost 2.4 million in the last two years. Let that sink in for just a minute. I'm not trying to, put a dark cloud over everything, but the way we put the brakes on that is to give more of our own time. That's that's my opinion anyway. Thank you. Yeah.
Because it's what you make about our panels, we, you know, folks that have been in the industry for a long time, and then we've got folks in the industry right there where, where Fred and Matt are at right now. But, you know, he spoke of this new generation that we're, we're trying to impact. Jeremiah, tell us a little bit about your your influence or what you're doing now and your, what the past three years you've been dealing with this new generation of hunters that we're trying to impact. Can you share a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah. Um, so if any of you follow on social media, you know that uh, I rarely show my face. It's all um, guts, or as Travis says, from the rooter to the tutor, um, is what is what I show and what I eat. Um, I've, I've fed a couple of these guys food that they looked at me like they were crazy. Uh, I think Cuz ate a bunch of bobcat jerky a little while ago and uh, absolutely loved it. But for me, it's reaching the generation that a lot of folks don't want to talk to. Coming from Southern California, where everyone is fake, um, and everything is, I mean, it's true. The lifestyle themselves, they will put themselves into debt to live like the Joneses, to live like the person next to you. Uh, just turn on TV and watch Real, House, you know, Real Housewives. Um, those ladies live 10 miles from where I live. And that is the lifestyle that's being portrayed in where I am. Veganism is huge in California. Veterani or, uh, vegetarianism is huge. But we're also in California, it's a melting pot of different cultures, different um, different folks that are coming in. And so when I saw this need three years ago, I started from, from field to plate out of a necessity for food. I started looking at what these guys were doing with, with kids. And as Cuz said, I looked at kids, but I've never seen a kid walk into a Bass Pro and buy a license and a gun by himself, ever. I can sit there for six months and I'll never see a 12-year-old walk in um, and buy something by himself unless dad's there and dad's in full camouflage. And so what I started looking at is how can I impact the hunting world through food? Because if we don't eat, we die. Plain and simple. So I started from field to plate to teach people there's a better way to do it. It's not wrapped in bacon, stuffed with cream cheese, and put the jalapeno. Don't get me wrong, poppers are amazing. Or for a lot of turkey hunters, right now, if I, I said, how many of you fry your turkey in nuggets and strips? Most of y'all be like, that's my favorite way to eat it. Uh, Jake over there is like, that's all I do. Um, for me, it was taking that and actually telling people that, hey, turkey's got more than just two breasts. They got two thighs, two legs. They actually have two little tenderloins. They have a neck, they have bones. We're gonna utilize every aspect of that animal. And through that, I started getting a large crowd of vegans and vegetarians that started following me. Um, I get roughly about 50 to 60 death threats a week. That's not even an exaggeration. I have my own FBI agent that I actually have to turn all my death threats into every week. Um, so much so that some of you heard the story about I took out, I took out 150 brand new hunters last year on my own dime. Um, out of those 150, 130 of them were adults between the ages of 25 and 70 years old. First time hunters, never been out, never touched a gun. Because I see that there's this idea for it. But in those hunters, three of those hunters were ex-vegans who actually gave me death threats uh, for about six months. So much so that one of the guys was very vivid on what he would do to me and my family on flagpoles um, in the middle of our state capitol. And what I did is I came at that guy with respect, with love, and with food. We talked about this food industry. Um, I'm allergic to processed meat and beef. Um, there's an enzyme within, within the fat of most animals when they become penned that my body can't digest. So I'm not allowed to eat domesticated meat. Uh, this happened about 10 years ago. And so I started looking at this idea of food. And so when people tell me farming is wrong and what we do with our cow industry is wrong, I'm like, you got it, I'm right there with you. Well, this is, yeah, I'm on board with you. And they realize that we have the same exact notion. 
So I sat, to, I'm gonna tell the turkey story about a vegan. There's a vegan Asian gentleman um, in San Francisco that was very descriptive on how he's gonna murder me. Um, and I took him out in the turkey field this last spring because uh, he wanted to go out and eventually through our process said, hey, you know what? I wanna try this. I don't know if I wanna kill it, but I wanna go see the process. And so I actually got permission we sat in the turkey field an opening morning. As many of you know, then that first gobble, like he said, this dude just lit up. Um, and I called back and just the hammering of the whole woods just went crazy. And first thing in the morning, as the sun comes up, we had a double bearded reel come rock right into our spread. And just sat there and I was like, this is your bird. This is, this is a trophy of a lifetime. This is what every hunter is looking for, this double bearded reel. And he sat there and goes, I'm not ready. I went, great. We put his gun down, we sat and watched that tom, I'm not exaggerating, for one hour. If you know anything about turkeys, they come in, they, they dill around, they leave. And we sat and watched this bird be a bird. And we communicated with each other, we talked, and that bird walked off. And that day, we went in the next morning, guess which tom came in that morning? That big old tom came strutting in, and he goes, I'm not ready yet. You shoot it, you shoot it. I was like, it's not my bird, man. And we sat and talked for three hours, watching the tom, and left. The third day we go out, and at this point, I'm like, man, I hope he shoots that bird. <laughs> but we sat there, and this bird came strutting out, and it sat there, and it puffed up, and it starts beating its wings, and, and I'm getting on video, and I'm just enjoying it. And all of a sudden, I hear him pick up a shotgun, and I'm like, and he goes, I think I'm ready. And he shot this bird, and it wasn't what you see on TV. We weren't smoked up, we weren't high-fiving. He sat there, put the gun down, and we just stared, and he started to cry. And me, I'll be honest, I cry all the time, I'm a big baby. And so I sit there and I cry with him. And we just sob in the blind for 45 minutes. And we go out and we touch the bird. And I said, hey, I know you're a Buddhist, but I pray over all my animals. I need you to bless this animal. And he prayed my God over that animal. And we sat and we went back and we ate dinner. And he taught me Asian techniques on a bird that I was going to teach him how to do something basic with. And him and his wife are actually gonna to come to one of my field to play classes in Texas and shoot deer this year. And his wife has been a vegan her entire life. To sit there and impact people on a level by showing respect and honor and doing what God told us to by loving your enemy is huge. And in the industry that we're in, we're destroying that. When I posted pictures of me taking a vegan out hunting, who do you think came back at me with backlash? The vegans or the hunters? The hunters. I blocked 30 of my closest friends in the outdoor industry because of how disgusting their reaction was for me to take out a vegan and the controversy that they started. I have not ever blocked one vegan or vegetarian, but I've blocked thousands of hunters and outdoor industry people because as they can attest, it's not about us, it's about them. And if I can take out 150 new hunters and I have two daughters, a dog, I run a business, I live in Southern California, Y'all who live in the sticks, who have kids in school that you drive by that you know don't take out, like to me, what's your excuse? It's to say you don't have time, but you look on, you can go right now on your screen and it tells you how much time you spent on your phone this past week. You're a liar. You spent, what, I mean, 14 hours on your phone this last week? Cut that down by 10, you got 10 hours to take somebody outside and sit there. And mentorship isn't correcting an action. And shutting up and just being there with someone that needs to be mentored. And I think that's where we as hunters shoot ourselves in the foot. Because we always want to be like, hey, you missed that bird, you gotta lead it by three feet. Versus, hey, what do you think went wrong there? 
What are some ways that we can fix that? Try and tell me about it. And shutting up and letting him figure out how to shoot a gun. Versus always correcting how to shoot a gun. Because when my dad used to tell me to do something, I did the exact opposite. <laughs> and if we take out kids and adults, especially millennials who are you know, roughly my age, we tell them something, they're like, you know what? You're a Republican, screw you. This is the way I want to do it. But if I, I, again, where I live in California, I can say that. Um, but to take someone out and show them respect and don't talk about political aspects, don't talk about anything else, don't talk about gun rights. These guys still refuse to buy guns. So when I take them out, guess whose guns they use? I, he he flat out told me, I will never have a gun in my house. Can I borrow your shotgun? <laughs> Eventually, I hope one day he'll have his own shotgun. But, so that's kind of what I'm doing. It's a little bit different than all these guys. I'm trying to come in from the aspect of food and respect. Because again, on Pinterest, like you talked about the female aspect of it. I have a couple recipes on Pinterest because my wife was always on there. I'm like, that's so stupid. So I started putting recipes on there. I actually have recipes that have been pinned over a million times. Oh my gosh. 80-90% of that are female. So there's this desire for them to cook. And I've gotten multiple emails from wives who said, I've hated deer. Thanks for your recipe. I'm going to go get my license because now we need more deer in our freezer. Which pisses the husband off because that's their deer camp. But <laughs> to me, that's kind of where it is. It's impacting the millennials that have tattoos and mohawks and the females who are scared to encroach on their sons and dad's honey ground. So thanks, Jeremiah. Who in this room is familiar with the R3? Who is not? Please raise your hand. What R3 means. If you do not know what R3 means, don't be shy. Raise your hand. That is the new movement. Uh, it is about the recruitment, retention, and reactivation of hunters. Recruiting new hunters, making sure that they retain and they're going to stay there and want to want to continue to hunt, but it's also about reactivation of people that may have gone um, before and kind of just let it slide by. We run into that a lot of times. We see that at the Federation with some of the hunts that we, we uh, have there. So I'm going to direct this question to all of you guys, but Matt, I'm going to start with you. Pretty much from an industry standpoint, you know, how can the industry help support this R3 movement? You know, I just had a, a meeting a few weeks ago at, at our state agency in Pennsylvania. We have, we have 900,000 licensed hunters in Pennsylvania. And through a survey that they've been doing for the last three years, two and a half million people call themselves hunters. And that, that I, I thought about that. I'm like, how does that happen? But there's a lot of folks that are hunters that don't have the opportunity, don't have access, don't have a buddy that they want to go do that. And you know, the industry support in R3 isn't just kids. Um, what you said, Jeremiah, I mean, it just hit me between the eyes hard. I mean, I've been to LA. It takes 10 days to buy a gun out there. It's hard to be one. You know, you don't have it as easy as we do where you can go down to a sporting goods store and buy a gun and some turkey calls. I mean, I, I actually, I'm sure Cuz and everybody here has probably been to California and talked turkey hunting or waterfowl and, and people out there want that information. Some of the best shows that I've been to which have been in your part of the world. But as, as an industry, we all talk about it a lot. I mean, we've, been, we've all been talking about it for years. And, you know, for me, taking my daughter for the first time, lots of lessons learned. But my, as an industry, we have to be a lot more proactive. Um, 
not just talk about it. We got to go out there and do it. I mean, sh shame on us. I mean, we, we all try to do our best, but maybe we weren't, we weren't focused in the right directions. You know, we're not focused at that 25-year-old like you're talking about. We're focused on kids. But like you said, if you take a kid, if nobody's back there to continue that growth, it doesn't, it doesn't go. So I think we have to maybe look at that. A lot of times we look for tomorrow. We got to look for that 20 years ahead of now. Thanks, Matt. Anybody else got more comments to that? I'll say from a manufacturer, what we talk about is a lot is the dot-com movement is kind of a little bit of a roadblock for us. Uh, everybody in this room and every manufacturer, um, it's hard to have that experience. Um, doing retail events all over uh, the United States, Cabela's, Bass Pro Grand Openings or whatever, you always see the family come in, right? mom and dad and, their, and, the, and the children. They're walking around seeing all the animals on the mountains and they're seeing the trout swimming in the drink, uh, stream. And there's a lot of interest there. There's a lot of attraction there. There's a lot of questions being asked. But now with retail, a lot of shifting a lot more to uh, the dot-coms, you don't have that experience. It's kind of a gap. The, uh, the, basically, the, the door count is going down tremendous in those big retail stores. Not many people are going there. 48% uh, of retail was done on dot-com in 18, and that's a tremendous amount. We're, we're losing a lot of experience and impressions, and it's something we're going to have to fight for, something we have to be aware of, because that's going to compound very soon. So, experience. Thanks, Brad. You know, awareness, it's all about awareness and how we can get involved. And, you know, I'm going to steal one from Jeremiah. You know, a lot of times people are afraid to mentor, but you're good enough. Never think that you're not. You're good enough uh, to be out there and to be a mentor or to take someone home and get involved in the board. So, you know, with that said, and again, this is open to any of you guys. I'm going to direct it to Jimmy first. Jimmy, how could the general hunting community that we've got out there now, how, how can they get involved or what are they areas that they can look towards? Um, you know, Travis, this, this, this subject we're talking about, this is scary. Um, like Cousin Fred said, since 1980, the hunting population went from 19 million down to 11 million. Well, they just did a recent survey or poll, and of course we're looking at how do we measure that? It's hunting license sales. And hunting license sales decreased another 20% from 2011 to 2016. If it keeps going like that, it, you know, it, the, if you look at charts and everything, this trend is, is down. And as, as the number of hunters no longer hunt, then there go your, your, your mentors. So th this is scary. How do you get involved with hunting? You know, of course, guns are a big thing, but th there's, there's a whole <clears throat> mob of people now that are anti-gun. But you also have archery, and you have archery in the schools. Uh, th that, that's a great start. But then archery in the schools only goes so far, and then where do you go with it? Uh, you know, you use these uh, bows with no sights and all that thing, and yeah, you're shooting round targets, not silhouettes. Uh, didn't really lend itself to, to hunting, but there are kids in those uh, archery camps and archery in the school that would like to go further, like to have, buy a bow, like to uh, learn how to shoot a bow, they learn, like to learn how to, to hunt a deer with a bow or small game with a bow. So you have, you have that um, 
ability to uh, to get kids interested in it. And, it, and archery too, archery is a big thing because you can you can do that in your backyard. You can't go shoot a gun in your backyard. You can't do some of these other things. Kids love guns. And you know, the, the manufacturers now are making guns like uh, AR-15s, little 22 rifles. I brought my grandson one. And uh, he just he just fell in love with it. He loves to shoot tin cans. He doesn't like shooting paper targets. He likes to see something fly, you know, something get, get reaction. So that's that's another thing you can do. You gotta make it you gotta make it fun. And sometimes hunting is not fun. You take a kid out on a cold, snowy, wet, rainy day, uh, he may not ever want to do that again. So you gotta you gotta watch what you do when you do it. Um, and you know, you you got a lot of people that never hunted and uh, now they're they're out of college and they're making some money and they wanna they wanna get into it but they don't know how to do it. And you know, those those that have never hunted, you first thing you gotta teach them is gun safety. Because they can be dangerous. And that's something uh, you know, that probably was drilled in our heads from an early age. I mean, you know, you point that gun the wrong way, you got a good whack on the head or something like that. So uh, it's just so many ways you can get involved and that we all need to, to share our time and look for those look for those opportunities. Anybody other thoughts from anybody else? Yeah, Jimmy did did mention right there, um, and I you know, I'm gonna think about it, it is scary guys. I mean if you think about it and what we see today and, and involvement and I'll give you some ideas and some opportunities to get involved, but it is scary. Um, traditions that a lot of us grew up doing. And of course, again, as I mentioned before, we're the ones, hunters, that pay for conservation. We pay for that resource. So, cuz, I'm going to start with you and kind of go down the line. You know, where do you see hunting in 20 years? You know, if we're not supporting these efforts uh, of the industry, conservation groups to support and get people involved in hunting. What, what will happen hunting in 20 years? You think? 20, 20 years is a long time. Uh, I was talking, I'd use this tube called that Jim didn't make all the time, and they brought me some extra reeds for it because I was out of reeds yesterday. I've been out of them for a couple of years, and he brought me a bag of them about that big, and, I, and my first thought was, well, that'll last me the rest of my life. You know, I don't know how much I got left going forward. So I'm willing, and I'm able, and I'm of the mindset now that that's, that's kind of my job. Same with Toxie and the Mossy Oak Bunch. It's going to take an all-out effort. You know, I'm personally very optimistic because the stuff you see in the mainstream media and all, and you hear all this crazy stuff, I don't think that's the voice of middle America. I really don't. I think there's way more common sense people out there. Uh, at Mossy Oak, we have dedicated ourselves to be involved with conservation groups. NWTF, NRA, QDMA, Ducks Unlimited, we're calling ourselves the official camel of conservation because those people in place, they, they're, they're, they're testing all the waters, they know what to do, so we're, our job, my job is to help them make money, try to make money to fill their coffers because it takes money to do that, to reach people where you're doing on social media or TV, so my commitment is to work with the conservation groups. They're the experts. Same way with CWD. I'm waiting to hear what 
the scientists have to say, let's, let's raise some money to get the test we need. I just feel like that good old American spirit will overcome everything. Uh, you know, access is a big deal. It's getting to be less of a deal because there's fewer hunters. I think that as the food thing gets up and there's more people like Jeremiah, who's the bullseye of the fight, trust me on that, become public, I think things will get better. I really do. That's my opinion. I think we have a great future.
people that are preaching gun control, they want to. They don't want people to have guns. Why do you need guns? You know, well, you, you know, police will protect you. Well, uh, Camille in New Orleans showed you how the police would protect you in, a, in an emergency. So uh, that that's not true. But they want your guns, and it, it, you know, and so that plays right into the anti-hunters, the PETA people. You know, social media is uh, some some young lady kills a lion in Africa and she starts getting, you know, puts it on Facebook and she gets death threats. All that kind of stuff plays into it. I, I am, I am, I don't know how we turn it around. Our numbers are reducing. It's like we're at the Alamo and we're going to stand the wall until we have, don't have breath in our lungs. But I think getting involved in, in, in politics is one thing we can all do very actively you make sure we've got the right people in Washington DC uh, you know uh, President Trump's two sons uh, Donald and Eric uh, we go to the shot show we go to the archer trade show those guys are right there and they hunt they I mean they hunt they don't just say they hunt like some politicians say they hunt uh, I got a friend over in Alabama he took uh, Doug Jones, a senator that uh, just got elected from Alabama, uh, uh, Doug called, wanted to go deer hunting. And so finally Doug killed a deer and it was a little bit deer, but he took a great picture of it and it was all about, he just wanted a picture of himself hunting and killing a deer. And he'll never probably hunt again. You know, that's the kind of fake politicians we don't need. So. Unless we get busy and get other people stirred up, the NWTF is the greatest conservation organization there is. I mean, I go to all of them, they're all great, but nobody does as much as NWTF with the Jake's program. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, I'm part of a company called Vista Outdoors. Most of you have never heard of Vista Outdoors. As a parent company, they own um, Federal Ammunition, they own Savage Arms, they own Bushnell, they own us, they own Fifty other brands, Hoppies Gun Cleaning Supplies. They're huge. They're the biggest player in the outdoor industry. They, we give millions to NWTF conservation and and uh, to help support that. Uh, the Archery Trade Association, another one that helps build archery ranges all around the United States. Who's here from Alabama? You, if you know about the archery ranges that the ATA built, yeah, uh, just beautiful in, in parks where you have. Uh, bathroom facilities, you have maintenance and all that, not just putting an archery uh, range out somewhere. So all those things help. And unless we get serious, unless we get busy and get active, uh, the future hunting is not good. Not Me and Cuz, we're not too worried about it in our lifetimes. We're going all the way out. <laughs> yeah. But if we don't watch it, you're going to look over at England and it's going to come like it is in England. They don't have guns, and it's, it's, it's the sport of the rich and wealthy. Okay, Matt. <laughs> I think another, time, another thing, and, and to me, in the last five years, I've realized it more than anything, is the relationship that you can develop with your state agency. And a lot of times there's so much turmoil going on. Any Pennsylvanians in here? Obviously we, obviously we know what's happening over in our state, which hunting is such a tradition, and we have to become friends. We have to go voice our opinions. We've got to work together. And, you know, 
but I pity you. I mean, the death threats and to stand up against that and, and you know, to go for it, tell them what you, what you, your message is as cool as anything. And, you know, you don't let that hinder what's going on. But as hunters, when we get on social media, we got to be positive. We can't just constantly be fighting. It's a drama world they're living in, as we see in our state, you know, over a simple thing that we haven't been able to hunt on Sundays forever because of the, of the blue laws. I mean, y'all probably laughing at me when I say that, but every time I remember going to Alabama, they're like, you can't hunt on Sundays? The first time I hunted on Sunday, it was weird, but it has to happen. It has to happen now so we can, so we can you know, just continue our mission. But getting involved with your state agency, no matter where you're from, whether you like them, hate them, or whatever, they're there forever. And without them, we're not gonna have hunting in the future. So I think the involvement there is so important, no matter where you're from and you'll see some of the political stuff that they have to face to protect our rights. I know from, from a personal experience in the last five years, just learning the stuff that I wasn't informed on because they weren't telling the story to me, the stuff that I've learned is tremendous and a little bit of help goes a long way, especially for the future. Jeremiah? Well, mine's be a little bit different, um, as you can tell from everything I do. First of all, I want you all to look around you. Look at all the people sitting next to you. Um, I think we need to start with ethnicity. Um, hunting is a very white, male-driven sport. And they say sport, people say sport, I hate it as a sport, because it's not a sport to me. Uh, but where I live, I am the minority. Everywhere, I mean, I, there's a lot of Asian influences where I live, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of African-American. And for us, as hunters, we are trying to mentor to the ones that sound like us. I don't sound like anyone up here. I don't got a twine. Um, I don't. I don't own a Polaris. Um, I don't have a backyard that I can shoot archery in. Uh, I have a ten by ten square uh, that my dog runs in circles in. Um, so when I look at like the decline in hunting, as Americans, we're a melting pot. We're so huge. I mean, Joanna's here. And I had a good conversation with her the other night with this idea about not being scared to take out someone that doesn't look like you. Uh, I sat in a blind, we took out some inner, kid, inner city kids from Compton. Um, they were between the ages of 12 and 18. Um, very large gangbangers that most people in this room would cross the street to walk on the other side when they saw them. And to sit in a blind with a kid that you can't give ammo to until a deer walks out um, is something powerful. To sit in a blind with a kid that you can't understand a word out of his mouth and you're telling him to pull up his jeans the entire time and all he says every other word is an F word. And you talk about guns, he's like, man, I shoot effing guns all the time. I shoot at people. What's a deer? Blah, 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 blah. And then to take a doe and walk up. And he, one of the stories is I took out this gentleman who was 16 years old, was in trouble with the law for gangbanging, had shot at people, had actually shot someone before. And we go out, and he was telling me all this great story about how he had shot somebody. And how he was the coolest thing in the world, that he could shoot any deer he wants. And I was like, all right, dude, that's cool, that's awesome. And then he shoots a deer, and he finds it. How many of y'all ever spine a deer? It's one of the worst things in the entire world. As that deer is paralyzed from the waist down and is belting as loud as it can, trying to crawl away. And we walked up to that deer and he was like freaking out about wanting to kill this deer. He's like, no, just watch it, buddy. Watch it die. Watch the life go out of something's eyes. You like to shoot people? You think you're cool? Watch this deer suffer. This is what happened to that lady you shot. Like, this is what her family felt. And he sits on the ground just sobbing, and he's holding this deer as it's dying. And I was like, just watch it. 
And I think that there, this kid now, this was five years ago, he is actually now going to, he just sent me a thing, he's actually on his way to become a Department of Fish and Game Wildlife agent. Um, because of that moment, sorry, I'm gonna cry. I told you I'm gonna cry, baby. Of watching a deer die. And I would have the confidence enough to like watch it die, dude. But I think as us, as some people put it, I look like your stereotypical hunter. I think our stereotypical hunter isn't what we think about. When we watch TV, it's not the hoo guy who's sponsored by Federal. It's the mom who's taking out a daughter who doesn't have a dad. I took out a 60-year-old mother this year for her first time, and I asked her the why, why do you want to hunt? She said, because my two sons don't have anyone to teach them how to hunt, and they want to learn how to hunt. And she shot a deer, and she took every aspect. She took the tallow fat to make candles. So she had candles in her house for deer fat. That's a different demographic. When we look at numbers, we look at stats, a chart is a chart, and it's all of her colors. So why can't we look at the hunting industry as all of her colors? Sitting in there and listening to all the speeches and all the talks, I actually looked at Travis and I said, hey, there's not one major sponsor from California, Arkansas, Alabama, North Carolina, all these other places. There's not one from there. Why? In WTF, in Southern California, we have one chapter. And it's ran by a bunch of old fogey guys that I hate going to the chapter because they're so stuck in, this is me, this is what I gotta do. I said it before, we're so amped on changing everything about hunting, I mean, the decoys. The decoys that my grandpa used are not the decoys that we're throwing out now. The realistic mojos and all this other stuff is going. So we're able to change our optics, our sights, our decoys, our ammunition. Why can't we change our culture? And it's not taking away our culture, it's bringing other cultures into our culture. And I mean, I went to India and they started telling me about their rich Indian hunting heritage. I was like, what? Indians hunt? I mean, the Neil guy and the Access in Texas are from southern India. They traded cows to India to get meal guy and access. And so when I look at recipes, I look at well, how Indian recipes that make that animal taste good. So I think the biggest thing is next year to look around, I'd love to see the colored charts sitting in the colored seats. But that takes a second for us to humble ourselves and walk up to that kid that we don't want to talk to. Especially a lot of the kids here in school, you sit there with the guys who are wearing cowboy boots, not the guys who are wearing gold chains. But if we can get those kids, guess what? Gun control is going to fall behind it. Political aspects are going to fall behind it. Get the kid out in the field, changing them from a gangbanger to a federal agent is going to change by us stepping out. So it's a little bit different because, again, I don't come from the retail side. I come from, I like to have a dad bought me side. Um, so that's what I like So thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the seminar. I thought there was some very good information in there that hopefully will motivate some of us to get some new hunters into the woods. You know, this is the time of year where we've got dove season coming up for a lot of us. Bow season will be coming up for a lot of us. Squirrel season will be coming up for a lot of us. Really all types of bird hunting will just be right around the corner. And this is a great time of year to introduce someone to the sport of hunting. And like these guys said, it doesn't have to be a child. There are a lot of adults who are interested in learning about hunting. Can you imagine how much fun it would be if you were a new hunter and your first experience was going on a dove hunt and it was a barn burner of a hunt? Or you had someone take you on a quail hunt or a pheasant hunt 
or chucker or whatever it is, and you got to watch those dogs work, I really think that in and of itself would be enough to hook someone on the sport of hunting. So you guys may want to go online and do a little bit of research and just Google your state and your state's Department of Conservation or Game and Fish or whatever it is they happen to call themselves and see if they have any sort of mentored hunting program that you can join and be a part of. That's the best way to get started yourself in mentoring someone, and it's the best way to find someone who wants and needs your help. And, well, that's my favor of the week. If you'll do that, that'll be a huge help to not only me, but to everyone who is in hunting. And I know it sounds crazy, but it'll be a big help to the animals that we hunt. Because, as you know, our license dollars, our gun sale tax dollars, our camouflage clothing tax dollars, and all the other tax dollars that we spend on hunting gear and accessories goes right back into conservation. So like I said, it's a huge help to me. It's a huge help to you. It's a huge help to the animals that we hunt. And don't forget that it's an even bigger help for our children's generation. With all that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week. And don't forget to listen to the Q&A after the gunshot and the turkey flop if you're interested in learning a little bit more about mentoring some hunters. I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.
invited one of those people. Every one of those people have invited themselves. Um, and I think a lot of us can think back to that time that someone's asked us to go hunting. And as a lot of us said, we don't have time. And I make myself available. My wife knows it. Um, and she knows that, yes, it sucks that every Wednesday and Saturday I'm at the duck blind with five new people in the blind. But she understands why I'm doing it and she supports me. But I think the biggest thing is I have a 100% success rate on my social media for response rate is I'm responding to the most dumbest, stupidest questions that are out there, and I'm answering it to get people excited about it. I mean, who in their right mind wants to know how to use something crazy? And if I don't know it, I'll tell them, I don't know, but I'm gonna research it, and I'll research the heck out of it and get back to them. But out of those 130 hunters, I didn't invite one person. All those people asked questions, and then through that, it came into a conversation, it was like, I wanna take you hunting, or they wanted to go hunting. The vegans reached out to me, what do I gotta do to go hunting with you? And I was like, show up. I have more than enough guns, more than enough ammo, more than enough decoys. I've got more than enough everything. You show up, and I'll make sure that you have a good time. And there's been times we don't. I take out. I took out 30 grown adults because they wanted to know what duck hunting was. In the middle of summer, we went and sat in a duck blind with dogs and decoy spreads, and we watched them calls. We called in ducks and watched them land. I told them to stand up and take them, and they all pointed fake guns and shot. And the ducks flew away. And the dogs ran out and got decoys and got stuff. And it got them so passionate about wanting to go out that when fall came, guess what? I got 30 phone calls. Is it duck season yet? No, not yet. Duck season yet? No. And so we actually had a day at one of our local refuge that I talked to the, the guy who manages it and said, hey, I need 30 blinds. He goes, there's no way. So I told him what happened. He goes, okay, I'll get you 30 blinds. And we had a bunch of volunteers that came out that just sat in blinds with people and they shot ducks. I meant, It'd be amazing to see everyone that shot a coot and got so excited. And I was like, uh, you've never eaten one. Um, but that's where, it, that's where it lies, is not being afraid to just go out with somebody. And when they ask you, it's sort of like, how many of you all have been like, I'll pray for you and then go home and never pray for that person? Um, if you say it, you do it and you mean it. So if you say you're going to take them out hunting, as sucky as that is on a Saturday when it's the middle of deer season and the rut's on, you take that person out and you let them shoot that buck that walked out because that's the story of their life. You've shot a million bucks, who cares? You know, and how cool is it to put a trail camera up with a new hunter versus you uh, with another deer on the wall? Because it's just another deer on the wall to most of us, so. Yes, sir, right here in front. I'm sorry, I'm coming right back to you. Right so uh, my question is, uh, how, what would be some suggestions to work with our local industry people, you know, the, the mom and pop stores that sell your equipment and stuff. Because one thing I found is, is um, I do a learn to hunt class and I go to a range and the, uh, the mom and pop stores want to charge me for my students to go there and learn how to shoot shotguns. How would I approach them to get them to buy in on us? I think you got to join forces with a conservation group and get somebody behind you. You know, maybe they got a budget. Maybe it's an NRA, maybe it's NWTF. But you know, it's mom and pop's got to make a living too. That's a tough question right there. But I think if you join forces with somebody and then have some letterhead and stuff like that, then you get their attention. Hey, it won't be impossible to get new customers in here. That's what I would do. I'd join forces. Tell, tell them you're planting the seed. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they're investing in planting the seed for potential new customers down the road. 
So, so what I've found is when I teach classes, is whatever product I'm using, that new hunter wants to go out and buy. Plain and simple. If I teach them on a, on a brand new Remington, the first gun they go out and buy is that same exact Remington, with that same exact ammo, with that same exact Vortex scope, and that same exact everything, because I taught them, they learned it, they felt comfortable with it. So when you talk to these companies, my big pitch is that I, I tell everyone, I don't wanna make any money off of you. All I want you to do is support me when I'm supporting these other people. And so for them, it's like, hey, if I tell them that we're using your product in your store, when those kids wanna go out or those adults wanna go back out, the one place they know that supports them is that place that supported them. So even getting a discount from people, getting them maybe not, hey, don't supply everything, but all we want from you is hats for every single person to wear. And the hats are three bucks, six bucks a hat. And so you look at these ideas, a lot of people go in and say, I want ammo, I want guns, I want this, I want this, I want this. That's a lot of money. But you start small, and what happens is they start to see that kid walking down the street, they've got that hat on, and it's all muddy and gutty, and they know that, hey, that kid is getting it, and then that kid's gonna come in and spend money. But I think the biggest thing is just starting small and working up from there. I've had good success using conservation groups. Uh, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Waterfowl USA, Delta Waterfowl, NWTF, uh, a lot of state chapters. They hold some money in those chapters and, and some of the conservation, and they're always looking to do stuff. But we do a lot of stuff with Pheasants Forever. Uh, and once you get them involved, they tend to be able to put network together. And instead of having five or six kids, you got 10 or 15 of them. And then you get manufacturers, you got people, and you got volunteers uh, to show up and help do that as well. So conservation, or in my state, the state of Ohio is very, very involved in that. So anytime we want to do something, we reach out to them, and it's more, more strength than numbers, for sure. Gotcha. Thank you. We have one more. Hi, so um, Mr. Strickland, you were talking about how um, women are natural born hunters too, which I totally agree with. Um, could you explain on that a little bit? So what was that question? Yeah, girls are natural born hunters. Oh, they are. I mean, I had all girls growing up. You know, I have daughters. And they were always more alert, more attentive, better shots. And like I say, now those, my girls are mothers, and they're more focused on where that meat's coming from. So I, I tend to kind of lean toward females, middle-aged females, because they're kind of taking control of what their family's eating. That's, I kind of search them out to do hunts with. I think that's the, that's a, I mean, that's one number of hunting licenses that is going to females. So, you know, when you're surrounded by women, you, they get most of your attention anyway. So it's easy for me to reach out to females. You know, to answer a real quick question, brother, they, they hit on it, you can get involved. You can make a difference. Um, there are opportunities for everyone in this room out there. All the guys have hit on it, whether whatever conservation organization, particularly with us. You know, we have volunteers. We have Save the Hunt coordinators in a lot of our states. We have R3 coordinators in several states that we provide that information that are out there. They're the driving force for us in this movement. And you have opportunity to reach out to them. You have opportunity to mentor someone or to get involved or to host an event, you know, working with someone. Uh, it, to answer that question, how do you get support from the mom and pops and the industry? The first thing that I've done, which has helped me with the program at, at headquarters, is tell the message. Tell them exactly what we've been in here talking about. And when they realize that and they know, 
I, a lot of times you're going to get support that you never thought you were going to get just by telling them the message. And they'll sell that message. And we have opportunities for everybody in this room to mentor, to be a part of Learn to Hunt, whatever it may be, but you, needing you to get involved and share that experience. How many of you, I see some of them out there now. Our campaign for this convention was the Mentor Pledge. You know, pledge to become a mentor. And we have that. I see some badges. If you're not familiar, we have it here. We're going to ask the guys on the panel. We have a mentor pledge up there, you know, that you're going to take that pledge with us and pledge to be that mentor this coming spring. Spring's right around the corner. Um, opportunity is there. Guys, share the experience. Share the tradition. Make sure that, you know, we continue on what we're doing. I think we've, we've kind of well-rounded this committee because Jeremiah shows you where we're going where we're at today and the groups we need to be focused on. But you have the rest of the guys on the panel talking about, you know, where they see it and how important it is because, you know, we've all lived that tradition. We've all grown up. And, you know, each and every day, you know, I've heard them mention about uh, Jeremiah talking about folks from international countries. You know, one of our things at NWTF is taking college students and we've had opportunity uh, to take out new hunters that are college students, Clemson University. How many Clemson fans in the room? Don't throw anything at me. <coughs> anyway, you know, they have an opportunity to learn to hunt. You know, Clemson's an ag forestry school, and they surveyed the campus. Uh, somewhere around 60% of that population that they surveyed never hunted, never fished, never picked up a gun. So they have this program, and we have that opportunity. We've been sharing that. But I'll tell one last story, and then I'm gonna let these guys get out of here because I know they gotta go. We mentioned it, we took a guy from China on a deer hunt, I was telling, I think I told Mandy about this. He came on his first hunt, he didn't harvest a deer. We took him out, and he was around, he showed up in blue jeans, Converse tennis shoes, um, and some kind of jacket. One of our mentors takes him out to have a blast, and the mentor comes back and said, man, that was great. Yeah, I really didn't understand him but we had a great time. I told him, I said, okay, come back, we're gonna do another. He comes back, he's already gone to like Walmart, bought him a Mossy Oak t-shirt. So, you know, you're making an impact, you can make an impact. Guys, I really appreciate y'all being here today. It, I think it's important. It's gonna take partnerships, it's gonna take us all to make a big impact. Guys, thank you for coming.